Amen. Good to see you today. If you're one of those who keeps track, you're probably thinking, wait, it's the third Sunday of the month. Justin's supposed to be speaking. So if, if you were coming expecting Justin, I apologize. His daughter Scarlett had a soccer tournament in uh, Vegas, I think. So he'll speak next Sunday. So then if, you, if you're a big Justin fan, come back next week. Um, and, you know, but I'm thankful. I, I enjoy being here whether I speak or not. You know, as you get older, though, you do look for, like I look, oh, the third week, okay, I don't speak. And you start feeling older. Last night, the kids were over, and, and I was having this conversation with my grandson, Brandon, who's seven, and, and he goes, how old are you, Papa? And I go, I'm 69. And he goes, I have a feeling that you're going to live to be 100. He said, in fact, book it. I guarantee you're going to live to be 100. And I go, oh, that's so sweet. And then he goes, wouldn't it be funny if you turned 70 and just... <laughs> There are days when I feel it, but I'm always blessed to gather together with God's people. We've been going through the book of 2 Samuel, and we've come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 this week, which is the story of one of David's greatest failures. It probably wasn't his greatest failure. We tend to, oh, hey, happy birthday to Susan. (laughs) Susan Child's birthday today. But um, so we... we, um, we often think of David and going, boy, he had these great moments, but then he committed adultery. And that was his one dark point. Well, as we look at the story, we'll see that it's much more than just adultery. In fact, the worst part is that he killed some people as a result. But at the same time, it's not even clear that, that this was his biggest mistake. There were mistakes David made that God had even more serious consequences too. But this is certainly a dark point in his life. But before we look at it, I want to reflect for a couple minutes on what sin is. Because I think quite often people misunderstand sin. And when we misunderstand sin, we will misunderstand how to live our lives completely. Sin is not God making arbitrary rules and then saying, you need to live by my rules. God doesn't care what we do. Nothing that we do affects God in any way. But God has wisdom, and he knows there are certain decisions we make that turn out really well for us. There are other decisions we make that really botch things up for us. And what the Bible calls sin is when you do something that's not ultimately in your best interest. The word sin, the Greek word for sin, hamartia, is a word that the, the core of the word, um, martos, or comes from the root meros, it means someone's portion or their destiny. And the A at the beginning, or the ha, but it's A with a breathing mark, means not. So what sin is, according to the Bible, is when you do something that's less than your ultimate destiny. When you do something that's beneath you, when you do something that is contrary to your best interests, in other words. And so, and life is that way, and it's been like that since Genesis chapter 3, that people will often do things that hurt themselves. The reason why God hates sin is because God loves us. 
And so when we do things that allow us to settle for less than the best that we can have, it's called a sin and it's, it's bad. But the worst thing is that we tend to take sins and compound them by adding other sins to them. It's kind of, you know, it's what has happened since Eve, like first has a conversation with the serpent, she shouldn't have, then she eats an apple, then she gets Adam to eat it, then they both hide from God. It's like one thing after another, this progression. Well, that's what we see David doing here in 2 Samuel 11. And so let's jump into this and see what we can learn for ourselves. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, the winter was over, in other words, at the time when kings go out to battle. It sounds like, oh, like a sport. It was war season, but it was really, it became practical to again have battles. Now, you remember what was happening in the previous chapter. Um, Israel had defeated the Ammonites, and then David had led them in a battle against Syria and had knocked them back for good. Well, now it was like Joab was out kind of mopping up the damage and finishing up the war against the Ammonites. And so they went out, and a lot of people will make, David remained at Jerusalem. A lot of people make a big deal about that, like David should have been out at the war. But if you study when he went and when he didn't, that's really not the way that it was. It wasn't like David was a coward and stayed home. He was the, he was the king, plus he was, there were times when he went to battle, but if you were a king and you went to the battle, you became a target. If they could kill you, they'd destroy the whole system of the country. And so it wouldn't be usual for him to be out there fighting on the front lines. And also in a battle like this, it was a pretty minor skirmish. So even as had happened before with Joab and Abishai in the previous chapter, um, David was back at home waiting to hear what happened. And, and so they went to war. And in verse 2, here he is back at home. And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. You can feel the tension rising. Now, if you've been to Israel, the city of David, which is kind of at the corner of the mountain that, that the city of Jerusalem is built upon, David's castle was built there near the top, so he had the views of the Kidron Valley and all that. People who were close in his administration, like um, higher level commanders and people like that, would have the, the apartments right below his working down the hill. And then other people would live up further on the hill of Jerusalem, others down in the Kidron Valley, over on the Mount of Olives and places like that. So if someone had a house within view of his house, they were probably there partly as security for him. So it tells us something about Uriah, whose house was right there, and it indicates that he wasn't just some you know, scrub soldier. He was someone who, even though he wasn't Jewish, he was a Hittite, yet he had elevated himself to the point where his house was close to David's. Now, people look at this and go, David should have been in the battle. It doesn't say that at all. I don't think that. It, yeah, you can get that. It's okay. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> I remember one time years ago at Calvary, somebody's cell phone started ringing, and Pastor Chuck just started going off on him. And uh, Chuck's wife, Kay, was sitting in the back, 
And I had her number dialed on my phone, and I'm like, do I hit send? This will be hilarious. But I lost my nerve. So anyhow, it, it's okay that he's not at battle. It's also okay that he's walking on his rooftop. That, the way they were designed, it was like there was a lanai off of each living level because it's hot, they didn't have air conditioners. So going outside, walking around, him surveying, looking around, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. People look at, well, Bathsheba, what's she out there taking a bath in public for? And, you know, she's, she's trying to entice him. No, that, that certainly isn't implied by this as well. That's where you would have a tub out there, because think about it, you have to put the water in it. Often it would be filled by rainwater, and then you have to drain it out. They didn't have sophisticated plumbing. So there's nothing weird so far, except that he looks out and he's like, whoa, she's hot. And, and he sees this, and at that point, so far nothing wrong, nothing bad has necessarily happened. But he had a decision to make. What do I do next? So David sent and inquired about the woman. Find out who she is. Now again, if he finds out, oh, she's so-and-so's daughter, she's available, okay, great. He could just marry her, add her with his other wives. No harm done, right? But somebody said, wait, I think that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Okay, she have a phone number? No, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. At this point, you're like, she's taken. Or you go, go get her. Uriah's out at the war. Go bring her to me. And so he sent messengers and took her. It's not like she had a choice. People are like, why didn't she just say no? No, in those days, you didn't say no to the king. So she came and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. Guy has to have standards. You know, the, the law tells you not to commit adultery, but it also says don't have relations with somebody if it's that time of the month. And, you know, it really makes a lot of sense in a whole lot of different ways. But at any rate, he's like, okay, you're not at that time of the month? Okay, here we go. So he lay with her. Now uh, she was cleansed from her impurities. And she returned to her house. So you're like, okay, she lay. Well, that's a metaphor because she ended up pregnant. The woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now David sent a message to Joab, his, his crusty general. And he goes, could you send Uriah the Hittite back to me? Have him make a report to me of how things are going in this war against the Ammonites. Because he's thinking, if I can get him to go home with his wife, then it looks like it's her kid, his kid, you know? And so Uriah comes, tells David all about the battle, how they're doing, and David goes, thanks for reporting. Why don't you go and spend the night at home with your wife, hint, hint, and... You know, then you can go back to the battle. And Uriah's like, he left. David gave him some food and stuff. And then Uriah spent the night at David's door, outside David's house, where all the servants stayed. And so when David, somebody told David about that in verse 10, Uriah didn't go home. Then David said, what's the deal? You got a long journey, Eddie. You should have got a good night's sleep at home. Go home, take a shower, 
And so then Uriah said, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. He's like, our armies are living in tents. As far as that goes, the tabernacle of God, the ark of the covenant lives in a tent. So how can I go in good conscience to my own house? He's quite a guy. And so he goes on and says, what am I going to go spend time with my wife and eat and drink? No way. I'm not going to do it. So then David said to Uriah, well, wait here today also and tomorrow. Why don't you stay back here another couple days? And then David tries to get him drunk. He's giving him a lot of food, a lot of booze. He's thinking he'll be drunk. He'll stumble home. He won't remember what happened at home. But then when a baby shows up, he's not going to be that suspicious. But again, he would not go down to his house. So in the morning, David wrote a letter in verse 14 to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Think of the brashness of this. He sends a letter that's going to tell Joab to make sure that Uriah dies in battle and Uriah has to deliver it. This is a guy with integrity that he's not even checking the message to see what it says. You know, not like blowing in the end of it and looking, I wonder what it says. Man, if he did, that would be horrible. But he wrote in the letter, look, send Uriah to the front of the hottest battle and then retreat without him so that he'll be struck down and die. I want him dead. So it was, Joab besieged this little city that they were at, and he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. He found the gutsiest people. Now, what we see from the rest of the chapter is he actually had them go straight up to next to a wall of this city. Now, when you're attacking a city, the last thing you want to do is get right next to the wall because they're shooting down at you. In the, one of the guys died from a woman throwing a, a big rock off the wall. So they send him, retreat. Of course, Uriah dies. And then Joab sent a message to David, and he told all about the war. And he told the messenger, tell David we had this battle, and we were really close to this wall, and you know we lost some men. And he goes, if David says to you, why did you do something so dumb to go attack against a wall where even a woman could take out one of your soldiers? And how did we get all these casualties? He said, tell David, oh, and Uriah the Hittite died too. Because at that point, then David is going to be like, oh, I get it. That the lives of a bunch of soldiers were worth eliminating Uriah from the story. And so they did it. And, and uh, you know, so all, all of this stuff happened. The messenger went and gave David the message. And the messenger in verse 23 said to David, the men prevailed against us. They came out in the field and we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants. Some of your servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite, he's also dead. So a lot of people died, including Uriah. So David said to the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this thing displease you. He goes, don't be bummed about losing all these, all these soldiers. It happens in war. You can't win them all. Yeah, some people died. It happens in war, basically. So encourage him. Then 
when the wife of Uriah heard about Uriah being killed, she mourned for her husband. But then as soon as she got over it, David magnanimously said, you know, here's this poor widow, her husband was brave and died in a battle, and so I'm going to include her as one of my wives, and I will take her child as my own. And she became his wife and bore him a son, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We don't see that very often with David where he does something and it displeased the Lord. We actually see sometimes when God was even madder at David than this, when, like when he numbered the people, he started thinking that he was cocky and great and he, God hates that kind of stuff. But in this case, God looks at it and he's like, this is disastrous all around. Now, we look at the story and like I say, quite often when we talk about David, we're talking about, um, oh, he's an adulterer, but he was forgiven. He's not just an adulterer. He killed a bunch of people who were loyal. He killed a guy who was obviously one of his best soldiers, most loyal people, took his wife and then killed him to cover it up and then puffed himself up as being some sort of a hero because of how he stepped in and gradually took over and he made himself look like a hero instead of a villain in this whole story. But what I want you to think about in this story, because I think it's an amazing picture of what sin does in our lives and why it's important to know when we take one step that goes outside of what is the glory of God for us, what is best for us. Because again, sin spirals, it compounds. Now for David, he first, and you can argue he should have been at war, I don't think that's the case, but you could argue that, oh, he shouldn't have been out on his lanai, but I don't see that either. You can argue that, oh, he shouldn't have noticed how beautiful this woman is. But whether you argue that or not, when he found out she was married and he said, bring her to me, that's a horrible mistake. But he could have thought, what am I doing? Hey, I just wanted to tell you, you know, you're gorgeous and I appreciate your husband's efforts and here's a pie, go back home. But he doesn't do that. He finds out, are you, is this the right time of the month? And, uh, uh, you know, are you ovulating? Okay. And so he makes that decision. Then when he finds out that she's pregnant, a choice is made there. What do I do? This would be really telling Uriah and confessing this. This would be bad. So the best choice that I can make right now is to have him think he made her pregnant. Now at this point, in fact, we don't really know what Uriah would have done. We, you know, in those days a wife was just property kind of, you know, whether, I don't like that, you know, most of you probably don't approve of that either, but that was the way it was. So in reality, you have Uriah who is a Canaanite who's fighting loyally for David, and if David goes, man, your wife's really beautiful and I'm sorry in a weak moment I did this. What's Uriah going to do? I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. He's not going to kill David. David's got his bodyguards everywhere and everything. So that's not going to happen. He might even say, 
I understand. She's amazing. And, you know, I'll forgive you. And David could have gone, okay, man, you guys have a pension for life, and I'm going to support the kid, and we're going to... Could have done that. No. He chose to go this other route. Make him believe that he's the father. Then when that doesn't work, again, here's another choice. Here's another junction in his life. Do I go, look, you're you're amazing. You're a better man than I am. But I so appreciate your loyalty, but I got some bad news for you, man. Let me tell you about this. Uriah would then have choices that he would make and should make. He would have grounds to divorce his wife, in which case then she could end up being taken in by David. There's a lot of things that he could do. Uriah could have found another wife, but he didn't get that choice because David, again, lied about it. And then it goes off and he sends him back to war. Now, David could have decided to send him back to the battle, knowing that there's a risk at that, and who knows what's going to happen. But he stacks the deck so that the only thing that could possibly happen now is Uriah is going to be killed. And in the process, David not only kills a bunch of other Jewish soldiers, but now other people know what he has done because of how he did it. A bunch of servants, a messengers, the, you know, obviously Joab, but some of the other guys who are like, what are you, why are we going to battle? This is crazy. And he's like, trust me. There's a plan to this. And then all the cover-ups, the family, during the, you're going to marry who? While she's mourning. It's like, all of this happens. And again, it didn't have to. It could have gone differently. And then even at that point, he could have secretly supported her, but he didn't have to do such self-aggrandizement to go, you know what, I'm going to come in and help and I'm going to make this child like it's my own and I'm going to marry this poor little widow and add her to my harem. Look at me. It's at that point that God is like, I am so displeased with you. I was displeased all along, but you keep doubling down on stupid. You keep doing one dumb thing which then leads to another dumb thing which leads to another dumb thing. And that's, in fact, what sin does. The truth is, that's all of our problems. Is that when we, it's not usually one mistake that really does it. It's like, we do one dumb thing, and then we have a choice. Am I going to own it, or am I going to cover it? Am I going to add to my sin, or am I going to pay the consequences and come clean? And the truth is, Ultimately, what our lives become are often and almost always a product of a series of spiraling bad choices that lead us where we are. People don't decide. Like, for instance, you have somebody who's a drug addict. Nobody ever, when they take their first hit off a joint, thinks, you know what, this is going to be great. One drug will lead to another, another will lead to another, and someday I'm going to be homeless, living in the gutter, and ruining my life completely. Nobody, nobody chooses to be an addict. People just choose to keep compounding their stupidity and their sin. That they, I settled for less than God's best, and now to fix it, I'm going to settle for God's less than best again. 
And it's a process of decisions over and over and over again that brings us to a point where we're like, how did I ever get here? How did I ever get to this point? And that's, it's like, the, uh, you know, I tell you, sometimes I like watching the show Hoarders at least once every couple weeks. Because there's a bit of a hoarder inside all of us. And you'd look at my stuff, you probably wouldn't think I'm a hoarder. But the reason is because I watch these wacko people, and I'm like, none of them, they all thought, I like little ceramic pigs. So I need to have a thousand of them. And, you know, I have so many. And so I, oh, how about this? I, I, you know, I haven't had a chance to read yesterday's newspaper yet. So I'll save it along with the next day's newspaper, and the next, and the next, and they get stacked up. It's like it gets out of control because you can't ever say, this was dumb, and I'm going to get rid of it. This was stupid, and I'm going to change it. I think coming up is one of my favorite uh, hoarder shows in Wilmington, Delaware, where this crazy old guy is hiding like confidential U.S. high-security documents. (laughs) They're like coming out of his garage and... They're under his Corvette catching oil leaks. And you're like, nobody plans that. You just keep doubling down on stupid, and that's where you get. And that's life. And for most of us, the dumbest things in our lives didn't happen because of one decision. They happened because of a series of decisions over and over again where it's like, I could stop this, but I'm not going to. People with no friends didn't lose all their friends all at once. They lost a friend here and a friend there. They offended a family member here. They alienated a person there. And eventually they're like, I have no friends. And I can't imagine how that happened. You don't know how it happened because it happened one person at a time. That's why you, you lied to certain people and you ripped off other people and you were mean to other people. And now all of a sudden, here you are. How did I get here? That's, what, that's the horror that sin does in our lives, is that little steps along the way, we make bad choices, and those choices lead us to other choices, and then we make bad choices because it's a habit. I mean, I think it's a good thing when you think about every day, there are choices that you will make today. Make it with a fresh perspective. Don't make it to cover up whatever you did in the past. It's, you know, I mean, most of my life, I've battled with eating food that's bad for me. And a part of it is God's fault because he made me hating vegetables. But, you know, I don't know if it was him or not, really. But I, still, if, I, if I'm going to eat something green, it's going to be an M&M. But, <laughs> but only a male M&M. But, no, but... You know, I remember when I was like 13, I was working in a gas station and I was working by myself all night. And I heard somebody say, if you really want to smoke, you should smoke a whole pack at once. Then you'll find out if you really like it. So I got a pack of, of course, menthol cigarettes because they tasted decent. I sat there on a motorcycle and I smoked 20 cigarettes. It was a slow night at the station. Nobody's coming in. So then all of a sudden, ding, ding. Back then, let me explain this to some of you. In a gas station, when you pulled in, people used to actually come out and put gas in your car for you. And so that was what I was supposed to do. They would also, this will blow your mind, they would come in, the most regular order was, give me a dollar's worth of regular, which would last you a week. But 
ding, ding. And I got off the motorcycle, and I'm like, whoa, I'm staggering. I can't even walk. I fell down in the grease. And I'm like, I don't like smoking. But see, the problem is most people don't smoke the whole pack. They smoke a little bit of wine and then a little more, and all of a sudden, they're addicted. No one ever chooses to be an addict. They keep making decisions a little at a time, and it leads to something that's out of control. And again, for me, like food does that to me. It's, it provides comfort like nothing else. I, it's partly because cigarettes, I didn't like them after that. But, but you know, it's, when I feel stressed, I want to eat. But it made me diabetic, it made me fat, it made me go, I don't think I want that outcome. So as a result, I crave donuts and things like that as much as I ever have, but I choose not to eat them because I'd rather live a little longer, just to prove my grandson wrong. But <laughs> and I'll get past 70. But see, we, we don't ever sit there and think, how did this happen to me? It happened to you one burger at a time. It happened to you one candy bar at a time. That's what's so tricky about it that I think that it happened, oh, somehow it just magically happened. No, everything in your life happened one decision at a time. And when you won't own those decisions, then you think, well, what can I do now? I'm just a fat guy and I accept it. I understand that. Believe me, I battle that every single day of my life. But at the same time, I know I can make other choices. And it's the way everything is in life. If you do something that is not in your best interest, it's not your best. It's not God's glory for you. Now you decide, what do I do now? How do I respond now? Am I going to continue to double down on stupid? Or am I going to say, I blew that, but I still have choices today. And that is the essence of life. And everything that destroys us is in one way or another an addiction to sin. It's a habitual, continual giving in to those things that are not in our best interests. And when our life turns into that, we get in a point like David where we're like, what choice did I have? You had a lot of choices. And like I said right from the beginning, the Garden of Eden, they could have chosen not to talk to the serpent. Eve could have eaten the apple and Adam chose not to. They could have chose not to hide from God, just to go to him and tell him what happened. There are all kinds of choices. But if you continue to put bad choices on bad choices, you destroy yourself. Now, the key to all of this is what we call confession. The word confess means to say the same thing. To confess means, I agreed that that was a bad decision. I agree that that was stupid. It is one of the most powerful tools that we have at our disposal as human beings and certainly as Christians. See, John tells us in 1 John that if we confess our sins, our shortcomings, our failures, the times that I did something that I know it wasn't in my best interest to bring the best in my life, 
If we confess those, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is our only hope, but it's also our incredible hope. Because now, I did something dumb. We all do. All sin, John said, if you say you're not sinning, you're a liar, you're fooling yourself. We all make bad decisions. The key is, what do I do when I make a bad decision? Do I confess and say, I know that God has better than that for me? In this situation, I did something that I would have been better off not doing it. Not so that you can look back and feel sorry for yourself. In fact, what a lot of people think of confession is, oh, I'm just so sorry. There are people who like, think if they whine and act like they're sorry that that undoes the past. No, it's only undone when you admit, I did this, my choice, it was stupid, I own it. What do I do now? Do you move on with the knowledge that you are clean and forgiven and life starts over at this moment? Or do you move on thinking, I need to undo something that happened in the past? I cannot undo any of the mistakes that I've made. When I try to undo them, I create even greater problems. But if I admit what I've done, that that I'm better than that, God has made me someone who deserves to have a better life than what that kind of behavior will give me, I confess, he forgives, I move on. It's, of course, key in having relationships. If you can't admit your failure then people who know you have to try to convince you that you actually failed. The most powerful thing you can do is say, I blew it. I own it. It's true. Confess. Boom. God forgives you. People may or may not. doesn't matter. He forgives you. Now let's talk about what are you going to do next. Now let's talk about how you're going to live now. And that is the key to life, ultimately. Even whether you're a Christian or not, Are you going to continue to double down on bad decisions? Are you going to own when you did something that was foolish, but now you say, that doesn't mean I have to do something else foolish to make up for it? Because that's how lives are destroyed. That's where addicts come from. That's where criminals come from. That's where everything that's destructive that causes you to have a life that's like, this life is terrible. That's where it comes from every time. David shows us, and I love that the story's recorded, and we'll see in a couple weeks when we get into chapter 12, how he ended up responding to this ultimately with one of the most beautiful pictures of confession that we can imagine But it's a lesson to all of us. I'm going to do some dumb things today. But I'm determined that when I realize I did something dumb, I'm not going to do something else dumb to add to it, to make up for it, to reverse it. I will own my sin until I confess it, and then Jesus will own it. And now it's gone. Now I can move on. Does that mean that mistakes that I've made, stupid things that I've done, don't hurt my future? No, they do. They have eternal consequences in many ways. But at the same time, the question is, how can I do the best I can right now? I maybe can't reverse anything from the past, 
But the choice is, as of right now, what I choose to do today is going to determine what my future is. And what I choose today largely depends on, will I continue to cover up or will I come clean and be honest about who I am? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story and recording it. It was, I'm sure it was painful for you even to tell this story. It didn't please you. You weren't happy with it. But at the same time, you knew how much we needed it because a guy like David had so much going for him. But he was doing things that in different ways we're all tempted to do. When we mess up, we want to cover up. We don't really want to confess. Protect us from those spirals. Protect us from those series of bad decisions upon bad decisions upon bad decisions that lead to devastation in our lives. Lord, if there are people here today who've never really come to understand what this is about, their idea of sin was that, oh, you do something that God doesn't like and you're in trouble and he's going to judge you. Help them to instead see your love, that you have a higher standard for their life than they do. And may they understand you are the only one who 100% will immediately forgive anything that we admit and confess and give us a chance to move forward in a fresh way. So if there are people here who have never come to receive you, I pray that today they would realize what an amazing opportunity this is to make the best of every situation, to move forward in our lives with you. Please help us to be interrupted as we think of this story. Lord, if there are areas of our lives where we just kind of feel like, I don't know how I got this way, show us graphically the series of decisions that brought us to where we are today. And let us know there's hope for tomorrow if we're real, if we're honest, if we confess. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.